0: Welcome back. Welcome back to the Vill News podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer, joined by Spencer Paulison. Hello, Spencer. Hey, Fred.
1: It's the dog days of summer. No, well, it's September, and it's after Labor Day, so I don't know if technically it's the dog days anymore. It's, it's dog days. Yeah. Puppy days.
0: Um, I mean, it means you should be going out and playing with your dog in ah. these days of summer. Okay, it's. Yeah. Uh, we are also joined digitally by Andrew Hood. Andy, you're coming to us. From the Andy Hood Man Cave, even though you've been covering the Welta, it sounds like these past few Welta stages have been very close to your home in northern Spain, so you've been able to
2: go home, sleep in your own bed. That's got to be nice. Indeed it is, yeah. Uh, up here in northern Spain and between Asturias and Castilla-Leon, uh, you know, after the summit finished, just go home, sleep in your own bed, have some uh, hoodie brew at home, and uh, everybody's happy. <laughs>
0: Hoodie brew. Ew, I heard about I hoodie brew.
2: That's gross.
0: No, no, no. You drink too much hoodie brew, you end up in a coma. Or at the very least, you go blind. Okay. <laughs> or, you, or you write 1,400 words on uh, the uh, impending battle between pro cycling and the UCI. But we're going to get to that later. We have More a great show yeah. uh, for this week. We have some news to get to. Um, various news bits have broken in the last week, and we're going to discuss them all, all from David Miller trying to run for the CPA presidency, to Garrett Thomas, where's he going to be next year? Well, we know now. I didn't know uh, David
1: Miller was an accountant. That's cool.
0: Yeah, there you go. He'll nice. do your taxes. Right, nice. Uh, we're going to talk lots about the Vuelta a España as it heads into its final week, because right now as we are recording it, it is the Weltas second rest day. We saw some great action the last few days, summit finishes. It was great. And then finally, Spencer, we have Americans to talk about because the Mountain Bike World Championships uh, went on this week past weekend in Lenzerheide, Switzerland, and it gave us some great stories as Americans to follow, namely Kate Courtney winning the world title, first American world champion in cross country in 17 years.
1: Yeah, Fred, it was an amazing race and uh, had a great conversation with her coming from italy via skype so you'll have to excuse the audio quality on that but that's coming up a little later in the show and i'll say right off the top fred my take is this was the best weekend of bike racing this entire year for spectators because the welta was awesome both days of the welta awesome summit finishes action in the gc the mountain bike world championships very exciting the men's downhill race the the mountain bike world championships exciting too on sunday if you're into that sort of thing not to mention we of course have tour of britain which is i guess if you like that sort of thing and montreal on sunday if you're into poutine
0: yeah we had the Montreal races. The Montreal and Quebec race. Totally forgot about those. Michael they, Matthews. They're a little forgettable. Let's be honest. Oh, no, I love those races. The finish there. Michael Matthews won both weekends. Chapeau to him. Uh, let's, let's blitz through some of this news. All right. Tour of Britain. Yeah. Julian Alaphilippe. He won it. Wins the overall. Yeah. Polls won a stage. I'd love to see when domestiques win. Way to go, Weltpoles. uh Another thing that came out of the Tour of Britain, ridiculous cyclist Twitter memes. I feel like... The entire pro peloton has gotten bit by the meme fairy or the, the, the meme bug, been blessed by the meme fairy. And everyone is now taking to Twitter to express their feelings about bike races via silly memes. I'm looking at- It's like uh, Kenan Wayans. Or Andre, Andre Greipel's page right now. He's not into the climbs, apparently. No, he's not into the climbs. He has a Ryan Reynolds meme. That feeling before a team time trial can't get worse. Just if it's an uphill TTT. Is that from friends? And it's a friends meme. Yes, <sighs> Chandler jumping into Joey's wow. arms. Europe is a little off the back, I think. Nah,
1: I support uh, it. I'll take it a step further when it comes to social media. And I was really enjoying Garrett Thomas's Instagram stories from Tour Britain because he was doing some some funny stuff with wild poles on the bus. And then, of course, after the race was over, had a little Instagram story straight from the discotheque where he was partying and up, nice. Chris Froome, cyclists dancing. Uh,
0: it's, it's quite a sight to see. So, Garrett Thomas also memed. About this team time trial, and it is an image of some poor dad lying on a couch, and his daughter jumps off the couch right onto his crotch. Nice. So that apparently is what a team time trial is like. I okay. If yeah. you say so. Uh moving on to Garrett Thomas. Garrett Thomas, we learned he has decided to stay with Team Sky. He signed a three-year deal to sign with Team Sky, which ends some speculation on our part. And I know there's a lot of like wishful thinking on our part that maybe some team could scrape together the resources to throw at Garrett Thomas and build a team around him to take on Chris Froome and Team Sky. Hoodie, when you heard that Garrett Thomas was renewing with Team Sky for 3 years, were you surprised? Was this just what you expected? What does this mean for cycling?
2: I was not surprised. Garrett Thomas, he's a smart guy, smart enough guy to know that he's on the premier team in cycling. He grew up with this team. It's his home. You know, what's he going to do? Is he going to go to Byron or UAE or Astana? Sure. You know, is
1: he, make some money.
2: Come <laughs> 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 on. Make some money. Is he seriously thinking he's going to be able to beat Chris Froome and win the Tour de France again? He won the Tour de France because he's on Team Sky. So his best chance to win again is to stay at Team Sky. And I think they gave him a nice whack of money, too. Three-year contract, you know, I think has got to be worth, uh, you know, the numbers we're hearing, you know, six million pounds over three years. So he'll be set up for life. And I think it's a smart move for him to stay where he is.
0: Yeah, I think that's something to take note of, is that, you know, we often see super domestiques like Garen Thomas move around as teams find the resources to pay them more. But Team Sky has the ability to pay him more than... Uh, team leaders will be paid at other teams. I remember talking to um, Lawrence Dam at the finish line, and he's just, of, the, of this year's Tour de France, and he's like, oh, you know, I'm a Domestique. Garen Thomas is a Domestique. He gets paid 10 times more than I do. So it makes sense for him to want to stay at Team Sky.
1: Yeah, and that's why Team Sky wins all the Grand Tours. But let's face it, Garen Thomas is never going to win another Tour de France. He's never going to win another Grand Tour, I, I think.
0: I. I uh, disagree with that. Whoa, yeah. okay. I, which, I totally, which one's he going to win then? Uh, I think he could win another Tour de France. And no, I think uh, Yeah. Come on, get well, out of town. Why wouldn't he be able to win another Tour de France?
1: Christopher Froome. Who is... Going to win the next three.
0: Older, a little bit more miles in the legs. I don't know. That's a whole other podcast. I could definitely see Garren Thomas winning another Grand Tour. He's a Grand Tour champion. He's a Tour de France champion.
2: What's your take, Cody? I, I would tend to agree with Fred. I don't think he's going to win another Tour... You know they might send G off to the Giro or to uh, the Weltah. You know, let him let him ride, let him ride the tour with Chris next year. The strongest man wins. I don't think there's much acrimony between those two guys. And uh, I mean, Brailsford is even telling tell me, me that uh, they will have a decision. This fall, let these guys enjoy their success. I mean, it's been a pretty crazy year for Team Sky with the Salbuto Mall case, with Firm winning the Giro, with uh, just what happened during the tour. So I think that whole team's ready just to decompress for several weeks going into the offseason. And then they'll reload, well, you know, reschedule things <laughs> going into uh, 2019. I-, I expect them both to be back at the tour next year, and I expect uh, Chris Froome to be the man to win the race.
0: Spencer? Uh, how does Garrett Thomas's social media game check out with what uh, Hoodie said that maybe he's ready for the offseason? You looked at his Instagram.
2: Yeah, he's,
1: he's chilling super hard. Yeah, okay. Super hard chilling.
0: I'm looking at his Twitter. Oh, another meme of him announcing his uh, re signing with Team Sky looks like a clip from the 1990s classic, My Girl where she's spitting on her hand and shaking a guy's hand.
1: They both spit on their hands.
0: Yeah. So apparently that's what it's like when you sign a new deal with Team Sky.
1: But they're not Blood Brothers, though, so kind of a step below the real ultimate commitment. Spit Brothers.
0: Yeah. Uh, Anyway, congrats to Garrett Thomas. Moving on, another piece of news. David Miller is running for CPA presidency. Ding, duh. Spencer's making the I'm falling asleep face. So David Miller... uh, Wait, first of
1: all, for the listeners, CPA is not certified public accountant in the world of cycling. It is actually the Ciclise Professional Associé in France. In in French, that's the the pro Pro Cyclist Association.
0: And you may not know about the CPA because... Well, the rumor on the street is the CPA doesn't really do much. Yeah, people like to drag the CPA. Yeah, they do. The CPA, the cyclist union, is charged with sticking up for the riders in regards to things like course safety, weather protocols, basically being a voice for the riders, and it's Run by Gianni Bugno, an Italian rider. I mean, a phenomenal rider.
1: Two-time world champion. Two-time world champion. People forget.
0: Believe there was a Giro in there as well. Yeah, why not? Um, Anyway, David Miller is launching his candidacy to unseat Gianni Bugno. He's made a fancy website. He's had a lot of press around it, and uh, you know, basically, what he's saying is, he's arguing is that the CPA just hasn't really done much. They're not visible. They're not vocal. And uh, what he's saying is, I want to make the Peloton the most solid and respected part of professional cycling because it's the racers that matter and you deserve to be treated as such and look, looked after and protected and above all educated. Not only for now, but for the rest of your life. So, Hoodie, we talk a lot about the various governing body, the, the various stakeholders in pro cycling you have you know, entities like ASO, the UCI, other races, RCS, battling it out, and the teams battling it out for who really has the power. You know, within that battle, where have the riders been in the last few years?
2: Yeah, you know, the riders... I'll be almost behind, you know, the bus drivers and the mechanics in terms of influence and uh, what's the decisions that are being made in cycling these days. Um, but there has been a, a kind of behind the scenes movement the last couple of years where a lot of the riders, perhaps more from the Anglo speaking part of the world, riders from Australia, United States, uh, the UK, riders um, kind of organizing among themselves and putting pressure on the CPA as an institution to be more vocal, to be more aggressive and standing up for the rights of the writers. And I think that's where this Miller candidacy is coming from. It's, it's kind of an insurgency candidacy. He's kind of going against the status quo and you know, as the CPA is organized now, it's made up of nation delegates. And what the writers are pushing for is more of an individual voice. So every writer can stand up and, and be counted and have more influence at the table when they're, um, you know, talking about these issues of changing the schedule, changing the calendar, changing team rosters, the riders really almost have no voice at all. And, you know, really cycling is the sport where the cyclists are the antagonists. But man, when you look compared to other major sports in the world, right? I mean, the cycling union movement is, is quite uh, weak right now within cycling.
1: And, uh, Hoodie, I think you're partially referring to the Association of North American Professional Cyclists, which is a fairly new organization, came up in the last few years, perk as they like to say. And um, it does seem like Miller's kind of coming from that faction of uh, the pro-cycling organization.
0: Yeah, and we could go on and on and on about the various politics behind cyclists and representation and the CPA. And I think that at some point in the offseason, we are going to have a more thorough discussion on all of the forces at play here. Because, you know, lack of representation within these various stakeholder meetings is, it's just a really big deal for the sport. And um, I can understand why someone like Miller would be able to have a platform um, and challenge Puno. So I believe the election goes on uh, around the time of the world championships. So we're going to be keeping our eyes on that. Um, before we move on to the Welta, quick little piece of news. Hoodie, you reported this today, this morning, Monday morning, which is that the UCI has some potential reforms on the docket for 2019. And the teams have gotten wind of them, and they are not happy at all. Hoodie, what are these reforms, these proposed reforms that are ruffling the feathers of the pro cycling teams?
2: This is a project that La Partie has been working on since he was elected last year. Uh, it's part of his larger agenda, of kind of his vision of trying to modernize and change cycling. The big issue really is the teams, at least that I, the ones that I've talked to, feel like this reform doesn't go far enough. Uh, the, the teams are saying that this reform under the La Plan now uh, is actually reducing the number of World Tour teams from 18 to 15, as well as opening up some new opportunities for the pro continental teams, which is argued a good thing. But the teams are arguing saying the reform we need to make in the sport right now is not about the rules or the point system or the regulations, but rather at a macro level in terms of how the sport's managed and run, who gets money where the revenues are coming in from, and is there a way to restructure the whole business model of the sport? And that's where the teams association is going to be quite strong on that point. It's like, we don't need to be messing with the rules right now. We need to be looking at the bigger, larger issues of the Peloton.
0: So now I know that some of these reforms are really targeted at giving opportunities to pro Conti teams. We've always talked about, we've often talked about, you know, if you're a pro Conti team, you're in sort of this amorphous black hole in the world of pro cycling. You know, you can't, you're not guaranteed entry to world tour events. You can try and gain entry to world tour events or other big races by glad handing and making contacts and doing, you know, all sorts of other things that we as cycling fans don't know about and don't see. So it sounds like part of these reforms are trying to give uh, structure for the pro-conti teams to gain access to the world tour. But I agree with you. It sounds like the plan really revolves around just shrinking the number of actual world tour teams, which seems a little strange.
2: Yeah, that's where there's some pushback coming back from the the major teams. Of course, they want to protect their interest. Uh, They're arguing, you know, why shrink the sport? Let's grow the sport. There is an interest. uh, There are some backers lined up to say they want to go to world tour next year. They're saying uh, sources are telling me that there could be 20 world tour teams if the USAD let it happen. They want to shrink it down to 15 as well as include this kind of wacky promotion delegation, relegation concept. that's in the European soccer leagues where if you're number one in the lower tier, you get bumped up the, the world tour. And if you're last place, Dimension Data EF Drop, Hawk, boom, you get relegated to the uh Pro Conti level. No one likes that idea because we've seen teams, you know, one injury or one bad crash from a star rider can really set a, an entire team back for an entire year. Um, but as you said, Fred, it does open up an opportunity for more uh second tier teams to get in these bigger races. And we've seen, of course, teams you know, falling off the map this year because they can never get into a Grand Tour.
0: The relegation model also has really wacky implications when you think of doping and performance enhancing drug use, where it's just like teams that are on the chopping block or those ambitious lower tower teams trying to get up there. I mean, whatever, it's competition. So I guess you could make the argument that we're already living in a competitive landscape in pro cycling. So those motivations are there, but, oh, I could definitely see scenario in which like Think about the Welta. It's like you come to the Welta it's the end of the season, and those teams that are looking for their World Tour wins to try and not be relegated are going to like do whatever they can. So I'm with you. I think that promotion relegation works great for European soccer. Don't know about how great it would be for pro cycling.
1: Slightly different sport. Not exactly the same demands on the athletes.
0: I think it's one of those in a perfect world type structures that could work. It's like in a perfect world where all the teams were well backed and had resources and had the ability to regroup and have entry to these races. And that would be great and a really interesting wrinkle. But alas, pro cycling is anything but perfect. Mm -mm. It's quite flawed. Yep. Except for uh, cycling media. That is nearly perfect. We
1: crush it for sure.
0: So we have some stories to keep tabs on. Um, I would expect to see more information from this world tour reform and the pushback against it to come out in the next couple days. Uh, guys, let's get to it. Let's talk about the Vuelta a España because we are the first, or the second rest day of the Vuelta. We're heading into this mountainous final week. I believe we have three uphill finishes and an individual time trial. And right now we have Simon Yates back in red leading the race with a slim advantage over Alejandro Valverde, Nairo Quintana. Who else is in there, Spencer?
1: Fred, this is awesome. I'm really excited about how this wealth is shaping up going into the last week of racing because it's just coming down to seconds at this point. And granted, Tuesday's time trial is gonna shake things up. By the time you guys listen to this, maybe it'll be a little less relevant what I'm gonna say to you, but Going into that time trial, Simon Yates only has 26 seconds on Alejandro Valverde. Teammate, Nairo Quintana, also Movistar, 33 seconds behind Simon Yates. And then Miguel Angel Lopez, Astana, 43 seconds back and forth. Steven Kreuzwick, looking a little dangerous at fifth, a minute 29 back, but he can do a pretty decent time trial, I reckon, certainly relative to a guy like Yates or Quintana.
0: All right, we're going to put on our swami hats right now then. And uh, yes, as the listeners know, by the time you listen to this, you're going to know more than we do right now. That's pretty typical. The listeners usually know more than we do. It's going to make it a little more fun. All right, so that's our top five. What's the placing coming out of the time trial? Mm. Hoodie? You go first. What's the placing of the top five coming out of the time, trial?
2: Ooh, on the spot first. I, I'd say among these, I don't think it's going to change that much. I think Yates will still have the lead. I Ooh. think uh, Valverde might bump up. Maybe maybe Valverde. I weren't saying Valverde.
1: Valverde you know. cannot bump up any higher than second without beating Yates.
2: <laughs> 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 He'll be first and a half. He'll <laughs> be first and a half. I think that uh, I think it won't change that much. To be honest, I mean, all these guys are not really good in the time trial, and especially against each other. It's just kind of whoever has the good legs on the day can maybe get twenty seconds. I mean, I don't see big gaps coming out of this. You see guys from behind moving up. Guys like maybe Kelderman or Ron can have a strong ride, but these top four or five guys, man, I just I just don't see see it changing that much all
1: right that was a huge punt good one good one honey. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: spencer you cannot punt
2: what's I, your top yeah five? i'm
1: gonna come in hot with this one okay all right i'm gonna say valverde moves into the overall lead yeah. so he'll be first i think yates will still be really close at second uh where we see the changes is around third i'm saying stevie Cruise Ship, steven kreuzwick moves up to third uh quintana down to fourth and then I think Lopez is just going to blow up, and he's going to be out of that top five. And we're going to see uh, Thibaut Pino creep into the top five with a time trial. He can time trial all right. He's not bad. Yeah, um, I like that. That's yeah. a good
0: placing. I'm going to pick the same top three as you. I say Valverde, Yates, and Kreuzwig. And then I see... Uh, Quintana going out a fifth. I, th- I don't think Nairo's particularly strong now. I think he's been writing a lot on instinct, but I don't think I think he's going to be exposed in mm. his individual time well, trial. Well,
1: you, you had a hot take on his instinct
0: earlier today when we were talking around the office. Yeah, we're going to get to that. Okay. Bad instinct. Yeah. So Ooh. I see uh, Angel Lopez and then Quintana. Mind freak. Yeah, the mind freak. Uh, but let's get into it, guys. We had some great action over the weekend. We had three uphill finishes in a row, culminating in... In the summit finish to Lagos de Covadonga, probably the most famous, well, one of the most famous and feared welta climbs. It's probably been, behind the Angleru. Yeah. It's been called the Alpe d'Huez of the Vuelta. I don't Spain's get that. Why, why
1: is it? It doesn't like resemble Alpe d'Huez to me. I don't know.
0: Hoodie, why is it called the Spain's Alpe d'Huez?
2: Well, it, it is similar in length and distance of that it climbs, but it's kind of more in the sense that it's the kind of most famous climb during the Welta. you know? Alpe d'Huez is synonymous with the tour. That's what I think people are alluding to when they say mm. it's the Spain's Alpe ways.
0: Mm. Gotcha, gotcha. And so we saw some explosive action over these last days. And, Hoodie, my question for you is, you know, we saw Yates get back into red. We saw Nairo Quintana battle with Yates, but also battle with Miguel Angel Lopez. What do you see? What were the defining moves and the defining dynamics that came out of these last three days of racing.
2: Yeah, I think you saw Star unable to really capitalize on their, their numerical advantage. And they got Valverde and Quintana right up there in the top, plus they have the strongest team. So they should really have taken control of this race. In fact, I expected Nairo to be in red today, and Yates, you know, is really racing smart. I think he's uh, being quite Prudent in his moves, he's, he's kind of waiting to attack, whereas at the Giro, he was attacking often and early. I think that was in large part uh, dictated by the fact they had that time trial versus Dumoulin and Froome. Whereas here, I think he goes in tomorrow not really expecting to lose that much time to his rivals. So he's been able to race more conservative. And, man, he's emerged as, uh, I think, the probably most impressive Grand Tour rider we've seen all season. You know, of, the, of, the, of the new guys, of the new guys.
0: Spencer? Defining, when you think about the last few days of racing, what do you see as the defining, Hmm. um, elements
1: of the race? Let me take a quick sidebar here and challenge Hoodie's contention that Yates is best emerging Grand Tour rider because people forget that Miguel Angel Lopez, he was on the podium at the Giro this year. He was third and... Simon Yates has yet to finish on a Grand Tour podium. So I'm still... I think the jury's out on Simon Yates. He's looking great. He rode well at the Giro up until the part where he didn't and totally got shot out the back. For me, these these last three days of Giro racing... or Excuse me. These last three days of Welta racing were just classic, classic Welta. You had those mountain finishes that were very, um, kind of irregular and there were surprises and the guys didn't quite know how they were going to, how it was going to, like, especially that Friday finish. Um, Quintana totally played his cards wrong. Went out too early. Yates, very patient. I agree with you on that one, hoodie. Yates was particularly patient on that finish. Um, and, uh, you know, on the whole, I, I think I see Movistar, yes, as maybe underperforming relative to the fact that they've got two guys in the top three. But I certainly am not counting them out, and I think the fact that both Quintana and Valverde are within spitting distance of the red jersey to me is like serious alarm bells ringing for Mitchelton Scott into this final week because, you know, two cards to play, and I, there's still tons of difficult climbing, and then... It's uh, it's going to be interesting how this time trial reshapes the GC, so uh, to a point, it's a bit of wait and see.
0: Plus, we have not seen Mitchelton Scott have the strongest team. We've seen impressive domestic rides from Jack Haig. We've seen Adam Yates be able to hang in that front group, but I haven't seen the type of teamwork and team firepower from Mitchelton Scott that you've seen from... Uh, star.
1: Yeah. In fact, there's controversy earlier in this past week where Movistar was forced to do some chasing when Mitchelton and Scott just put their hands up and said, no, thanks. And um, to me, that's like, yeah, maybe, Mo- maybe Mitchelton's just being smart about it, but it could also be a lack of resources.
0: So in my opinion, the defining dynamic over the last few days has been the bizarre Colombian rivalry between uh, Nairo yeah. Quintana and Miguel Angel Lopez, which has It, to some degree, opened the door for Simon Yates, not just to take red, but to look pretty comfortable in red. So we've seen a few times where Nairo and Miguel Ángel López have basically just marked each other. On Friday's stage, I believe it was Nairo who launched the first salvo, and López went right onto his wheel declined to pull and so the two of them kind of lollygagged out there on the climb yates was able to catch up
1: this was funny too because astana just destroyed the field leading into that finish climb up um i forget what it's called it's that hey, hoodie you gotta you gotta help us out with that finish climb what was that
2: oh some of these climbs La Cobodonga.
1: no 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 you're talking about saturday right fred
2: oh this was
0: saturday
1: yeah
2: stage, yeah Oh, sorry, Las Paredes. Les
0: Paredes. Okay. Per- sure. uh, and then we saw the uh, Colombian rivalry, you know, rear its head again to La Covadonga when um, it was Miguel Angel Lopez who had his team shred the field going into the base of the climb. He launched an impressive attack, and then Nairo had Richard Carapaz completely blow himself up to bring the red, bring the group right up to Lopez's wheel and then Niro sprung across got on his wheel and again nothing he, you know he um, he put in a pretty big effort both from his team and from his own legs to get there and that seemed to be his only bullet because he did not attack for the rest of the climb which leads me to wonder what the heck are these guys doing aren't they trying to win this race are they just trying to win the Col- best Colombian prize that's not even a that's not even a jersey that I can remember <laughs> hoodie what can you tell us about this colombian rivalry that we're seeing play out at the vuelta
2: there is there is certainly a rivalry between the colombian riders i mean we've seen this whole generation come up from rigoberto uran uh esteban chavez uh, nairo Miguel lopez bernal i mean these guys are all superstars back in colombia uh you got uran doing pepsi commercials you know acting like Mick jagger uh chavez is a big star nairo is nairo king tana they call him so all these guys are definitely racing against each other, not only for results, but also for kind of attention and deals back home. Um, and you know, there's there's rivalry between where they live in Colombia. You know, there's certain writers are from certain parts of the country. It's like, you know, East Coast, West Coast, rappers, you know, what I mean, it's like they're all from the same country. But, you know, you got you got some rivalries there, and you see it play out in the race. And we're seeing it play out dramatically during this Welta. And let's see. What happens if Iran gets back in the race with a strong time trail on Sunday? Because he's kind of like the godfather of, of all these uh, new young guys come up. So interesting dynamic.
0: I guess my question, though, is is there more glory at stake to be the first Colombian or to have these Colombian guys battle it, it out versus winning the entire race? Because, you know, I, I got to say, in some of those moments on the climb to Los Covadongas, I, I thought that, it, you know, I thought that they were racing against each other as opposed to racing to win.
2: Well, that's true as well. And I know I remember back in the, when uh, Nairo won his first Giro and Iran was there, uh, you know, a lot of the Colombians expect the Colombians to ride together to win for Colombia. And so that's not playing well back home. And there were some comments today, some criticism against Nairo for that very fact of chasing down Lopez and then not really doing much to help him or even help himself when he didn't come over the top to a counterattack. So there was a question today in the press conference, like, Nairo, what do you think of the criticism? He goes... Uh, the criticism doesn't hurt, but my legs do. And that's why I haven't been able to do more during this Vuelta.
3: Ooh.
0: So, he,
2: so he's, he's been saying that he just doesn't feel that great.
0: I think it checks out. I mean, watching him race, First of all, it was Lagos de Covadongas. I think I called it Los Covadongas. Yeah, I know. My <laughs> Spanish is terrible. I think that the the Nairo comments check out because in the final to Lo- Lagos de Covadongas, he did not look as strong. And I remember this is the climb where in 2016 – he completely annihilated everyone. I don't know about you, Spencer, but I was kind of waiting for something like that to happen.
1: Uh, yeah, it's hard to say. And it's a it was a really strange finish because it was so cloudy and foggy up there that Pino, Thibaut Pino was not far off the front in, at the finish there. He was like, what, 10, 15 seconds? And they just didn't see him, so there wasn't the same impulse. And uh, also, I, I think you were saying that, uh, or, or someone was saying that in the press conference afterward, Quintana indicated that he maybe didn't actually realize that Pino was off the front and that there was some confusion there, which maybe dictated the way he raced that final, you know, final few kilometers.
0: So hoodie, we're coming into the final week. We have the individual time trial. Then we have three uphill finishes, including two really difficult days around Andorra. What should we keep our eyes out for?
2: I think, like, in any grand tour, it's like, who has the legs in in this last week? That's always a difference. We saw, of course, how Yates imploded at the Giro. That's why a guy like Nairo, you can never count him out because, yeah, maybe he's not looking sharp right now, but he's got that grit and that kind of uh, depth in his form to go long and hard for three full weeks. That's where I think guys like you know, Yates has to prove himself, even Lopez really – Came through at the Giro, but he was just following wheels at the, end of the, at the end of the Giro this year, which is never easy. But that's the big difference between, I think, a winners like a, a guys like the Quintana, the Dumoulins, and the Frooms, and these other riders who can come close, but they have not actually delivered. So I think that's going to be a key factor in this final week of the Welta.
0: Big mountains around Andorra, too. It's going to be a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting. Well, well, stay tuned to VeloNews.com. We're going to follow the end of the Welta. Actually, Hoodie, before we let you go, we have – One last Welta topic to talk about, which was the bizarre finish of stage 12 when a race official was hit by Alexander Genev of d'Uzer after he won and crossed the line. Um, As someone who goes to a lot of bike races, I've definitely been along the finish line, gotten yelled at race officials to get the... F out of the way and I've always been a little annoyed and been like oh come on man it's Fred Dreyer don't you know <laughs> uh, I will never adopt that tone again having seen this clip because if you know you can find it on Twitter if you hunt around and it is brutal yeah. this poor man uh, wrong spot at the wrong time and speeding cyclists caught him you know just elbow to the face of this poor guy now hoodie you did some reporting around this what can you say about this incident and what people have been talking about around
2: it yeah, I mean, uh, you got it right, Fred. It was like uh, the finish lines are just chaos. And, and everybody in the press room with that day was like, there for the grace of God go I because we've all been in that situation on some mountain atop somewhere and some crazy finish and riders are flying through. And and it's really just – it is a chaotic situation. Basically what happened that day was the man's name is uh, Chema Rodriguez. I mean he's he's a veteran of of the Vuelta. I think he said this was going to be his 37th and final Vuelta, España. And this is, of course, not the way he wanted to go out of the race. He was a longtime journalist. He used to run a uh, weekly sports uh, or a a weekly cycling-specific magazine here in in Spain uh, called Meta Dos Mil. And, uh, you know, he he was the guy that ran the the photographers at the finish line. So he had gone down to the finish to uh, notify the officials there to direct cars away from the finish line because they were supposed to drive through the finish behind the riders. So he was running back up to his position behind the photographers when the writers came in and one photographer told me that the police were telling him to cross over. So if you look at that clip, he kind of, you could see the, the policeman gesturing to him. So he kind of followed the, the policeman's gesture, didn't look back before he made that pivot to the left. And that's just right, at the wrong place at the wrong time. And, uh, you know, that should never happen. It was a very narrow finish up there when we saw the video clip. But at the same time, uh, you know, Dylan, Dylan Van Barrow had to pull out of the race two days later because he crashed over the top of this other guy and, and uh, injured himself. Unfortunately, the journalist uh, resigned his position that night. He came back to the press room that night. He had a bandage on his forehead. No serious injuries for him, thankfully. But uh, you know, he was quite upset about it, and he actually posted a message on Facebook apologizing to everyone and left the race that night.
0: Yeah, there's going to be a lot of hemming and hawing uh, following this incident about proper finish line design because that was a very narrow finish. Riders were complaining about it. I think there's also going to be a lot of hemming and hawing about proper finish line etiquette of who can go where and who should not go where because of this. Uh, But at the end of the day, you know, and we're going to get into that probably in future. The sport will deal with that in the months to come. But I think all we can say right now is we're just happy that... The guy was okay, and we're bummed that Dylan Van Barl had to leave the race. But I think we're both happy for Virginia's uh, Van Barl and this gentleman because it could have been a lot worse. Yeah,
2: it really could have.
0: Well, Hoodie, thank you so much for checking in with us from the Man Cave. We will catch up with you after the Welta to talk about who won. All right.
2: Sounds good. Ciao.
0: Spencer, uh, we had the Mountain Bike World Championships go on this past weekend. You know, I was remembering back to when I was covering mountain biking like 10, 12 years ago for Velo News. Back when they had V-brakes. Yeah, V-brakes. No, they had disc brakes, but they weren't weren't that great. They weren't that great. (laughs) But there was like no way to watch this race if you weren't at it. I remember attending some of the races, the World Championships in like New Zealand and stuff, and there would be some fixed cameras here and there but really you had to be there to watch it and now because of red bull kudos yeah. to red bull huge kudos huge kudos i that's one thing when i just look at cycling i think of what has changed and it's the accessibility to watch world class mountain bike racing and to have the tv product be a good one because really good. fixed cameras drone cameras
1: like i don't know the the footage is just great it was awesome and um and this was a good year to have great footage of the racing because it was a really, really exciting women's cross country elite race. And it came down to the last lap and Kate Courtney, American Kate Courtney, like we said at the top of the show, she made history and she broke a 17 year drought for the Americans in the cross-country events. Ha- Americans in cross-country mountain bike events haven't won a world championship since Allison Dunlap in 2001, just days after September 11th. It was an emotional win. I remember reading about it and it just being the most amazing thing to just hear about her coming back on the last lap and passing to Dali when Gunrita had flatted and sure enough wins the world championships. And similarly this year, for Kate Courtney, she caught and passed Anika Langvad on the final lap after Langvad had bobbled on this really difficult off-camber root section of the course.
0: So let's talk about this race. It was a really interesting dynamic. Um, Langvad sprang to a really early advantage. So coming in, I think everyone was watching Yolanda Neff. Yeah, Yolanda Neff's really been going off the
1: front hard and fast and early in these World Cup races. Annika
0: Longvad, people were watching her. Didn't happen for Yolanda this year though. It was all Annika right from the start. People were watching Emily Batty. There There was like this short list of really high up favorites. And Kate Courtney was not part of them. I mean, she's sort of like a second tier favorite. She's been finishing steadily sixth place between sixth and 10th, 11th on the World Cup, which is great. I mean, those are amazing finishes. Definitely. She wasn't on the shortest list of favorites coming into this race.
1: Yeah, it's, it's pretty unheard of for a rider to just jump straight in. First year as an elite professional, win a world championship without having previously finished on the podium at any world cup let alone win a world cup she she stepped it up to an entirely new level at um at the at the world championships in Lenzerheide Switzerland
0: so langvad springs to this big early advantage she sprints away from the gun has a little bit of a crash but really is able to open up this huge gap and behind Um, Courtney is able to make it out as, out of the chaos of a mountain bike start. The start of a mountain bike race, of a world cup mountain bike race is chaotic. There's a lot of banging bars and people going out too soon and people getting balled up behind them. Kate Courtney didn't have that problem. She was riding comfortably in second. And behind that, it was like the rest of the field was really having to sort itself out. And as the race entered the you know second third fourth of seven laps it really became this two-person battle with kate courtney you know holding her gap around 18 seconds eating into it one lap losing a little bit more the next lap and then tell me what happened next as we came into lap five and six
1: yeah in the, the final few laps of the race it, you could see that long was starting to pay for her earlier efforts and the interesting thing is that i think that the, that that took the shape of her bobbling more often on technical sections. Not so much that she was exploding on the one steep climb of this course, which is early in the lap, but more so she's just kind of riding a little sloppy on the very difficult root strewn course that this is. And uh, also choosing to take a lot of the B lines where, the, you know, modern cross country racing now has a line and a B line option. And usually the top pros will take the a line. It's a little faster, a little more direct. It's more of a high risk type of trail though. And um, so long VOD, not quite as comfortable on the technical stuff, whereas Kate Courtney was riding very smooth and definitely taking the A lines and she kept clawing back that advantage. And sure enough, going into the the last uh, few laps, she had Long Vod in sight and by the final lap, they were together.
0: Yeah, so she makes contact right at the end of lap six. They head out lap seven, together and Langva just twist the throttle going huge up huge attack. attack it was a
1: huge attack and I don't know about you Fred but I was like well it's over yeah I didn't totally. think that I didn't think that Courtney had another match left to burn to, to bring back Longvad. and the gap it, it, she got such a big gap so quickly on that attack on that climb that it was like well game over but uh it wasn't over. It's no, not over till it's over.
0: It's not over till it's over because, like you said, you know, Courtney was taking these a lines. Boy, that one scary a line up and over that rock. Yeah, some great photos. You should search for it online from the mountain bike. It's totally kind of the iconic image of this year's world uh, championship. Yeah,
1: totally blind over this knobby rock, and then just right down the steep backside.
0: Wild. So Courtney was making up ground on her there, and then as they entered the Rudy section, Langvand, you can see her. She's slowing down. She's trying to pedal over these lo- these roots, and then boom front t- front tire stops she unclips and has to run and that gap to courtney just just disappears just goes like that courtney caught her passed her seemed to accelerate after she she passed her and then Kate Courtney was able to hold this gap I build on it. I mean, it was, it went out so quickly. It was like 10 seconds, 18 seconds, 25 seconds. And by the end, I think it was close to 40 seconds.
1: Yeah. I don't remember exactly, but it's a special feeling you get when you catch someone in a mountain bike race like that. And you know, the wind is on the line and, and it's, it's a bit of a shot of adrenaline. And Kate Courtney told me herself that she was specifically pacing this final lap, knowing that the last part of it required extra energy due to the technical nature of the, that section and the fact that it's kind of a rolling lumpy and difficult um, bit, of course, compared to the, it's very straightforward, of course, to hammer that first climb, which is what Longbott did. But Courtney, very disciplined, waited, you know, rode within herself on that climb. And then she was able to really open the throttle in the last bit, get that gap and there we have it, world champion.
0: So, a couple of things stand out to me about her ride. We're going to get to her interview her real quick. The first is that she was obviously on incredible form because Literally, you know yeah. she was riding in sort of that fifth to tenth place on the World Cup for most of the year, and then boom, right out of the gate, is able to challenge. So she obviously timed her peak amazingly. But the second thing is the maturity at which she rode. You know, a lot of times we'll see some a race where a rider goes way off the front. And riders behind will just be resigned to race for second place and be like, okay, I'm going to hold my position, ride for second place. And that's not what she did. She kept climbing back. And then even on this final lap, when she gets dropped on the climb again, to have the presence of mind to say, you know what, I'm not going to blow myself up. I'm going to like regroup and just see what happens. So uh, just, you know, she's only 22 years old. Like you said, this is her first year riding as an elite but she rode with just a just a real maturity. So kudos to you, Kate Courtney. Now, Spencer, you were able to link up with her on a call earlier today. So enough of us talk about talking about Kate Courtney. Let's hear from Kate Courtney about her world championship ride. <laughs>
1: Okay. Kate Courtney, congratulations on your world championship win. I think you're the first reigning world champion to be on the Velo News podcast.
3: Wow. That's a, that's a huge honor. Thank you.
1: Well, it only makes sense because you broke a 17 year drought of Americans winning cross country races at the, at the mountain bike world championships.
3: That's, that's a pretty crazy, uh, crazy thing to learn. I definitely didn't, didn't know that going in hadn't thought about it. Um, I know for me in particular, there's, there's a couple women just before me, Georgia Gould and Leah Davidson, who've won medals. But, um, but yeah, I didn't know it had been so long since anyone took home the top step.
1: Well, yeah, you're off to an awesome start and you're only, what, 22 years old. So I think there's lots of great racing for you to come still.
3: Yeah, definitely, definitely a lot more opportunities. And uh, I think I'll have some extra motivation and a little extra... hopefully a few extra rainbow watts now (laughs) i don't know if those work the same way as sparkle watts but uh but i will certainly be really honored to race in that jersey next year
1: yeah it's going to be really cool to see you wear it and so before we get too far into the action of the actual racing i think you need to give our listeners a quick explanation of sparkle watts it's a it's a it's a a common hashtag on your instagram photos
3: uh yeah no i think so a couple years ago um i got a, a bike with a paint job that had a bunch of sparkles in it. And and I kind of made a joke about it that sparkles give you extra watts. But I think, um, since then it's kind of become a fun thing that for me, uh, represents, um, you know, being, being able to keep it fun and being able to be feminine and, and have things that are sparkly, um, and still go out there and kick ass, uh, with your sparkly bike. So for me, I think it's a cool, um, little source of motivation and a fun little hashtag and it also gives me an excuse to wear sparkly things.
1: Nice. <laughs> nice. Well your bike must have been super duper sparkly on Saturday at World Championships because huge win. Um up until now your best elite World Cup result was six, I think Val Sol, if I'm not mistaken.
3: Uh I was in Mont Anne.
1: Oh excuse me, Mont St. Anne. No no yeah. So my point is it's a huge jump to get from there to the podium let alone a world championships win. Um, tell me about what that took.
3: Yeah, I think, um, this season has definitely been one of learning for me. I've, you know, had my first elite season in the world cup field and it's so much more competitive. It's, it's really a different style of racing. Um, it's close, it's tactical, uh, and it's extremely challenging, but I think I really was able to take away huge learnings from each race. And, um, and I, I kept being really close. In Monsignan, uh I was actually in third going into the last, second to last lap. Uh, and we're actually going into the last lap, I think, and got flat, had to get a change, crashed, ended up getting sick. So I think I kept really getting close and knocking on the door and showing up with good fitness and, and racing my heart out. And it just didn't quite come together, um, but all those learnings certainly came together and, and helped me have that one special day where, you know, I really felt like I performed to the best of my ability um, at this time, and and that was a really special thing. Um, just to have that good of a ride for me was really special, but then to also have that ride be enough to take on the stripes was uh, was more than I could have imagined.
1: Um, and yeah, speaking of the Cape Epic, um, I, I remember us talking about it after, or at the Whiskey 50 weekend, and I remember you saying that uh, training for that race, you were really motivated by how it was sort of an unknown for you. And you're also kind of motivated by some people who are maybe doubting a little bit that you could pull it off and be competitive there. Uh, did you draw on similar motivation ahead of worlds when you were training or, or perhaps in the race itself?
3: Definitely. That's, that's accurate of the Cape Epic. It was a huge challenge and something I'd never, uh... I I didn't have a kind of baseline for, I didn't know how my body would respond to stage racing and I didn't know how it'd respond to the volume. So, um, that was a kind of a different kind of pressure and a different kind of excitement. Whereas world championships, it's, um, it's in the same field. It's, it's the same girls as a world cup. And it's the same, um, type of a course, you know, I've raced world cups at lens So in terms of, um, the kind of, like unknown part of it, it's it's a bit more familiar. I think it just, with it being world championships, there's a whole new level of pressure. Um, and I think for me, actually, this race was really special because it was my first year elite. And I think I had had a really successful World Cup season. I, I ticked a lot of the boxes and met a lot of my personal goals. And I felt like Worlds was an opportunity to just see what happened. And uh, I didn't go into it with, um, huge expectations or huge pressure. I went into it a little bit as the underdog. Um, and I think that's, that's definitely a role that I thrive in. Um, and for me, it was just about like believing it was possible. And, um, I don't think anyone really like would have said, no, you can't do that. But I think, you know, only the people that were really, really close to me and have been in my village for a long time were kind of pushing me to say like, no, 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 you could win a medal or, or just like, don't count yourself out. And, um, I think for me, it was about being open to the possibility and the fact that I did have, um, people in my village who believed in me and, and who pushed me to, you know, really, really think that I could finish anywhere in that field. Um, it was really important for me to have those, those voices in my head when I might've settled for second or third, but, uh, but kept pushing.
1: Yeah, so at at what point in that race did it become pretty clear to you that you had a shot at a medal or perhaps even winning it? Because I know you've had some World Cups where you've started very well, ridden in the top three for, like, the first half, and then you kind of seemed to sort of fade toward the back end of the race. When did it become clear that you were actually racing to get on that podium?
3: Yeah, I think one of the interesting things is when, whenever I have my best results, I always am not paying attention to the outcome. So I was really focused on just being in the moment and racing to the best of my ability. Um, I think also I had watched a lot of the races that happened at Lindsay Hyde the past couple of world cups. And, um, those races all played out pretty interestingly in in a similar fashion where um, the course beat a lot of people. So people went so deep on that climb and then, you know, started making mistakes or couldn't uh, maintain momentum in the technical sections. So after watching that, I knew that for me, it was going to be about riding my own race and chasing my own personal best performance. Um, and I trained so hard. And so I, I really was focused on like, okay, what, what power can I maintain on this climb? How can I ride this technical section better? Um, and not on the girls around me or what position I was in. So I think for me, that was the key. And in particular on that last lap, the fact that I was really internally focused, um, I was able to tap it back on that first climb when I needed to and stay within my limit. Um, and I think that actually gave me a lot, uh, a lot of power towards the end of the lap where it really counted. Um, and I was able to ride smooth and execute my, my race plan, um, Without necessarily having thought too much about what position I was in, I just kind of tried to ride ride the best I could and looked up uh, at the finish line and realized no one had crossed the line in front of me, um, which was a pretty crazy moment and a really amazing feeling.
1: That takes a lot of discipline because watching it and seeing Longvod drop you on that first climb of the lap, I mean... I must've been more nervous than you were probably, I gotta think, because you seemed very composed. Um, especially, I noticed you had a, a a pretty significant bobble, I think I think maybe in the second to last lap, where you had to get off and walk a little bit on one of the rudy climbs. I mean, how, how do you stay in your zone and stay focused and avoid letting that sort of um, shake you up in the middle of a race when you're potentially, uh, yeah. a, a rainbow jersey's on the line? Whew.
3: Yeah. Well, I'll say, first of all, I was, I think it's way more stressful to watch that race than it was <laughs> to be in it. Right. Um, my parents are at the finish line and I just, they couldn't even watch. They like had to go back and watch, um, the, the replay afterwards because it was, it was a really intense half lap. But I think for me, um, I've done a lot of mental training. I, I, you know, focus a lot on how I can race in the present and really bring my attention to what I'm doing in the moment. And I actually had my sports psychologist there at the race, which was really exciting. Um,
1: you can shout her and, out too if and you I want.
3: Just, yeah, Chris and Kim. <laughs> there you shout go. out to Chris and Kim. But the plan for that day uh, was really to ride my own race. And I think that's something that I know how to execute. I know how to ride the root sections clean. And I know how to bounce back from a mistake, just keep moving forward one step at a time. Um, and I think that's one of those things where, when you're just plodding along, you, you don't realize you might be one step away from the rainbow Jersey until you take that step. And then all of a sudden, um, everything has come together. But for me, the key in that last lap was just staying focused and I really didn't think about the Jersey. Uh, I just knew I had to ride, uh, like, like I deserved to win if I wanted to win.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, um, so, and then of course, there's the most exciting part of the race when when long bobbles, on the off camber, you take the lead. I mean, I know you're saying that you're racing your own race, you're internally focused, but as far as I could tell, watching the broadcast, it really looked like you got a shot of adrenaline when you made that move. I mean, you were out of the saddle, you looked totally like a different rider once you took the lead. What did that feel like?
3: Yeah, it was a, it was a pretty crazy moment. Um, I think, you know, the fact that I was able to stay within myself on that climb, um, once I descended down and, and the point at which I caught, um, Annika, I had, I had really recovered. And so I was kind of like ramping back up. Um, and I think also for me, I spent a lot of time on the line choices on that second half of the course. Like I felt really comfortable on the A lines and I'd spent a lot of time working on carrying momentum in like in the saddle through those sections. And so I just kept telling myself, like, this is this is your section like this is where you thrive just ride it the best you can and everything will take care of itself uh, because i knew if if i rode those sections the best that i possibly could um that i had a pretty good chance of staying away but still i had no idea i never looked back i had no idea how far away she was um and watching the replay actually with my parents was so stressful i was I like bet. i did not know she was right there <laughs> that you guys must have been really stressed out watching this. Whereas all I had to do was focus on like hitting a certain line. So, um, in some ways it was easier to be in my position.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, And speaking of those A lines, you know, the one really crazy rock move where you hop over a really knobby rock and go down a ramp on the backside. I was amazed that you took that line on the final lap when you were in the lead because you had bobbled it like a lap earlier or something. And it, I mean, that's kind of a risk, eh?
3: Oh, I don't think so. I, I mean, I, I bottled it once out of seven laps. Uh, <laughs> that's fair. Good, good odds. Odd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good odds. But uh, but also, I felt really comfortable on that line, and I, I don't know. I'm of the opinion, like, when you're being chased down, like, your job is to ride the best that you possibly can. And if I make a mistake, or if I, you know, run out of gas, and Annika raced incredibly well and passed me. Like she deserved to win. And so my goal was not to like play it safe at that stage. It was to to try to ride like a champion and try to earn uh, the title of a champion. And and for me, that means hitting those lines and completely nailing them. And so to be able to do that, um, you know, felt really good, obviously, and and also gained me valuable time that uh, that I think really was definitive in the race outcome
1: yeah it it definitely seemed that way watching the broadcast because annika wasn't wasn't taking the a lines for the most part and and um going back to what you'd said earlier about how you thrive in under underdog role i, I gotta think that that's gonna start to change really quickly now that you're wearing the rainbow stripes is uh, I, would you still consider yourself an underdog?
3: Well, i mean, I think I have a long way to go. i think that race like things came together and it was a really special day and it wasn't an accident like my fitness uh, was a result of really really hard work but i also think that i have a lot of things to improve if i want to be able to perform at that level consistently throughout the world cup season so that's really where my goals are next year and where my focus is in this off season um but more than anything i think you know people talk about the pressure of the rainbow stripes and um it's a symbol that when i work really hard and when things come together like it's possible it's possible for me to be the best in the world on the day. And so I think it's really going to be special. I, I get to wear the stripes on my Jersey next year, but I get to have the the stripes on my sleeves forever. And it's for me, something that's really motivational and, and I don't feel it as uh kind of a, a thing that adds pressure. I think it's more something that is a constant reminder that, you know, anything is possible. And when you believe in yourself, you can, uh, can be the best on the day.
1: Nice. Have you found any good tacos in Europe or is it kind of the danger zone? Not
3: a single one. That's brutal. It's it's okay. I mean, we're going to go home and I feel like I've I've earned a couple.
1: Yeah, more than a couple. Kate, good luck uh, this weekend at Marathon World Championships and um, thanks for taking awesome. time to talk thank to, thank to us. Thank you so much. Yeah, congratulations.
3: Hopefully, hopefully we'll have some fun. The, the pressure is off a bit.
1: That's what it's all um, about. So now
3: I can just have some fun on my bike. There you go. And eat a lot of ice cream after. Nice.
1: For lack of tacos, you go with the ice cream. There you go.
3: For lack of tacos. I think ice cream is like the go-to end of the season thing. Because nice. you're not really eating a lot of ice cream the week before World Champs.
1: Pro- probably <laughs> so. shouldn't. Yeah. Probably shouldn't so do It's that. a
3: good one to, to go for afterwards. Nice.
1: All right. Well, you enjoy that.
3: Awesome. Well, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Fred, yeah, like you said before we cut into her interview there, she's just way, way mature beyond her years. Just 22 years old, but I think she's more mature than you and I. I mean, like, let's be serious. She's so composed. I think that goes without saying. Yeah, and, and also, like, I love the part about how I was like, well, like, you know, you had that bobble on the A-line. Did you ever consider, like, outriding that since you were in the lead on the last lap? And she's like, no, didn't bother me. No, I only did. I only bottled once out of seven times. So it's like, yeah, you're right. I mean, but that's like some serious nerve.
0: I think an interesting element about Kate Courtney from your story that you wrote on her Velo News was uh, USA Cycling Brass talking about how she's this rider for the future. And how they think, you know, maybe she, she could be an Olympic champion in the future. She could be a world champion in the future. Well- Future, futures now. Futures now. Way to go, Kate Courtney. Yeah, we'll be real excited to see what you can do in Tokyo. All right. Let's get to some off the front, off the back before we get out of here this week. Uh, that's what is hot and not in the world of cycling. I'll start us off off the front, new beginnings. Mm. New beginnings. New beginnings. Very hot, very hot, very hot for Magali Rochette. Oh, yes. Cyclocross racer. Fresh team. Yeah, was on the Luna. And Cliff Bar team for many years. You probably recognized her as the Cyclocross Mountain Bike Racing Franche Canadienne from the Cliff Bar team. She's no longer on the team. She's struck it on her own, uh, sponsored by Cyclocross. She has basically, uh, sponsored by Specialized rather. She has her own cycling team, uh, privateer setup that she's put together. And she won both days at Rochester Cyclocross. Came out swinging. Yeah. Nice one. Big race. Beaten some uh, heavy hitters out there, too. Yeah, definitely. Magli Rochette on top form. Um, what I'm going to say for off the back is the concept of the sophomore slump. Hmm. You know, you ever heard of the sophomore slump? Yeah. It's like your first year, you're real good. Your second year, not so good. Mm-hmm. So this is the second year for Stephen Hyde to be wearing the Stars and Stripes jersey. His sophomore year. So, but the concept of the sophomore slump. Not yeah. because Stephen Hyde came out swinging. He won both days at Rochester Cross as well. Way to go, Stephen Hyde! Making the sophomore slump look stupid.
1: Yeah, it'll be exciting to see what he can do in these first two World Cups here in the U.S. And those are coming right up here at the end of September. So hopefully, uh, he can get a nice result, nice top ten, get those points for uh, later in the season.
0: Spencer, what's off the front? What's off the back?
1: My off the front is going to be, uh, broadening your horizons. And that means for me, for, for pro cyclists, it's easy for them to just get stuck in their same discipline, only ride mountain bikes, only ride road, not Christopher Blevins though. As we've talked about before, we are big Christopher Blevins fans here on the podcast, he had a great season both riding for Action Hoggins Berman, as well as specialized in the mountain bike. And he rounded it out with a silver medal in the under 23 world championship cross country race in Lenzerheide, Switzerland. And um, he's one of just three American men to get on the podium in a cross country mountain bike race at Worlds since the last 20 years, pretty much. Only Howard Grotz, and, um, Walker Ferguson have gotten medals in those junior and under 23 categories. So things looking great for Blevins. And the reason I say this whole concept of, of broadening your horizons is because Blevins told me specifically that racing on the road for Hagen's Berman has really helped his mountain biking. It's helped his engine. He's really built his aerobic capacity. And I think that's what he's going to need if he wants to step it up to the next level, the elite level of pro mountain bike racing. And, uh, we all know, Nino Schurter is looking pretty unbeatable. He's won yet another World Championships this year in front of the home crowd. So, Chris Blevins, keep it up.
0: Uh, we are both mountain bike fans, and we want to see Chris Blevins stay with mountain biking. Yes, correct. Yes. Yes, definitely. All right, forget about the road. Two to two to zero mountain biking in favor for yeah. Chris, Chris Blevins, and
1: we'll add Kate Courtney to that one too. I bet she would say the same. And she was on the podcast. So I bet she, yeah. That's a proxy vote. All right, off the back for me is going to be holding your line in a sprint because Mm. old Michael Matthews didn't seem to have any concern for doing that at the GP Montreal on Sunday. Yes, he did win the sprint, didn't get relegated or anything like that, but it was a pretty... He kind of sprinted like a jerk, let's be honest. He started way on the right side of the road and then came cruising all the way across to the left barriers when he realized Sonny Gobrelli was going to lead it out early. Shocker. I mean, I could have told him that was going to happen. Everyone knows Cobrelli likes to lead out the sprint early, but apparently Michael Matthews hasn't been paying attention. And he kind of chopped BMC's Greg Van Avermette, Olympic champion. Van Avermette wasn't too psyched about it after the race. He said he thought he would have won if it hadn't been for that incident. But... um, I guess it was a clean sprint. He didn't get relegated, but uh, still, eh, kind of bad form in my book.
0: Don't sprint like a jerk. Yeah. Unless you're going to win a world tour race. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on Villanue's.com. Subscribe to the News podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of News on Facebook at facebook.com slash Magazine. Follow us on Twitter twitter.com slash VeloNews. News. Velo News Podcast is produced by VeloNews, News, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. Thoughts and opinions expressed on the Velo News Podcast those are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing the Bernard Purdy Classic Soul Drum.